If you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. This is week 8 in our series through the book of Romans. What we do here is uh, work our way through the Bible one section at a time, not skipping any, uh, at least in the New Testament letters. Uh, And that way the text drives the agenda, not uh, what we see on Apple News or whatever's going on in, uh, in my mind or the minds of our elders. The text drives the agenda. And we'll be covering verses 1 through 20 of chapter 3 today, not because, again, this is, I'm not on any soapbox about how evil the world is, or this is not a passage that I picked just to preach through. This is where we left off last time. We left off at the end of chapter 2, and so we begin this morning with chapter 3. In the summer of 1954, after serving his country in the Air Force, Johnny Cash determined he wanted to make a name for himself in the music business. And so he reached out to Sam Phillips, who was the exec over at Sun Records, and he tried to schedule an appointment. He just really wanted uh, Sam Phillips to hear his music. But Sam Phillips uh, was pretty tied up after already having been introduced to uh, some lightweights by the name of Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis. He didn't really have have time for this guy by the name of uh, Johnny Cash. Well, Johnny Cash was from Arkansas, Sam Phillips was from Florence, Alabama, but they were both in Memphis, and Cash just tried to do everything he could to secure this appointment. Uh, but he continued to be rejected, and so he worked hard, he, he uh, sold appliances during the day, and worked practice with his band, the Tennessee Two, at night. And finally, finally, Sam Phillips relented and determined that he would meet with this young kid named Johnny Cash. Well, when he met with Phillips, Cash that is, as the story goes, he sat down with with his guitar and in his smooth baritone voice, he played a few songs for Phillips, but Phillips was completely unimpressed, not the least bit enamored by Cash. And at one point, he actually stopped Cash right in the middle of a song and he said, look, everybody's singing these same songs. Everybody's saying the same thing. You sound just like everybody else. And then Phillips paused and said, if you had one song, just one song that you wanted the world to hear, what would you sing? Sing me that song. Johnny Cash said that moment changed everything for him. What song did he want to share with the world? Here we are nearly 70 years later in a region where everyone's pretty much singing the same song. Be good, try to be your best, be true to yourself, have your good works outweigh your bad works, and God will approve of you. But we have a different song, a much better song to sing uh, to the world. It's a song the Apostle Paul made his theme song. In fact, at one point in one of his letters, he actually said it's the only song he knew. He said, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul will lay out beautifully in the book of Romans, was the song he had on repeat. Now, we've already seen why, and we'll continue to see why. It is the gospel is the cure for death. It is the answer to our alienation from God. It is the announcement that God is going to put right everything that's that's wrong with the world. It is the good news that we can know God and be right with God, but... In order for us to really regard that and understand it as good news, Paul has spent most of chapters 1 and 2 laying out and explaining the bad news. 
And I have to tell you, he's not done yet. In fact, he will actually double down, drill even deeper this week in this passage on the bad news. But there's some good news that we're going to see as well. So this morning, we're going to consider three things, the nature of God, the nature of mankind, and how Jesus bridges the gap between the two. So Romans chapter 3, again, we'll cover verses 1 through 20. Let me begin by reading just verse 1. Here reads the word of the Lord. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? We had a a missionary last week uh, who did a great job of explaining the highs and lows and challenges of church planting and, and how you know, Christ is preeminent in all of that. Uh, but since it's been a couple of weeks, let me just remind you where we left off. Why is Paul asking this rhetorical question? Well, basically, Paul has just said in the section above that uh, circumcision is nothing if not accompanied by covenant obedience. So he went on to say, look, if you've been circumcised, of course, circumcision was a, a, a right of the Jewish people. And he says, if you've been circumcised, but you don't obey, it's as if you've not been circumcised at all. And then he turns the tables and says, but if you've not been circumcised, a la the Gentiles, but you do keep the law, then it's as if you were circumcised, or you have been circumcised in God's eyes. So naturally, the Jews in Rome who are hearing this letter read are probably thinking, now this was not the easiest procedure in the world uh, to undergo. Why bother if we're going to be considered uncircumcised anyway? Is there any reason to even go through with it? And does that mean that our ethnic identity as Jewish people means nothing at all? In other words, what does it mean to be a Jew? And look at how Paul responds in verses 2 through 4. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So the Jews were given the law of God. They were brought into, through no merit of their own, a covenantal relationship with God, a relationship that was sealed and symbolized by circumcision. More on that later. They were the nation through whom God said that all the world would be blessed and actually be introduced to the one true and living God. Paul's already made it abundantly clear in chapters 1 and 2 that the Jews had no advantage uh, before God in terms of salvation, but they were chosen by him to reveal to the nations the very character of God. But they didn't believe in the one God had sent, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They were faithless. They were unbelieving. And Paul anticipates their question, if some of us have been unfaithful, that is to say, at showing the rest of the world the character of God, then will God be unfaithful to us? And Paul's answer is, in the Greek, may genoita. In other words, may it never be. It's a strong, strong uh, denouncement. And then he uses a common Roman idiom, but rewords it to show God's faithfulness. Let God be true and every man a liar. Now remember what Paul's doing here. He is preparing the way for the most glorious news of all, which he's already talked about in chapter 1. But he's, he's delivering the bad news. And he'll get even uh, deeper into it and in what we're going to read in a minute. But what he's saying is, it is foolish to accuse God of wrongdoing 
when God judges, judges anyone because what God does and says is always true and faithful because by his very character, God is true and faithful and cannot lie. So here's our first point this morning as it relates to the nature of God. Because God is by nature always true, everyone who opposes or contradicts him is by definition a liar. Now what this means is the person who rejects God's design for fill in the blank, for marriage, for sexuality, for human dignity, for the sanctity of human life, for relationships, we could even just say, broaden it out and say, uh, for morality in general, far from being open-minded or sophisticated or progressive, is actually, or we could even say, or even just simply misguided, he or she who rejects God's ways and God's word is a liar. And I really, those are strong words. You know, we have this tendency to want to appear uh, insightful and, and, and forward-thinking and bright. Of course, we do. Um, sophisticated in our reasoning. You know, everybody wants to feel like I'm you know, kind of more advanced in my thinking than maybe my parents or the previous generation. There was a, a mini-scandal in the evangelical world a couple of years ago where there was a man who posted pictures of himself on Instagram uh, donning a, a graduation uh, gown, all the, all the formal regalia. He had, he had received, he had accomplished his doctorate. And he proceeded in Instagram to thank all of his friends and really thank his wife and his family for all the time and all the support and all the encouragement. Um, and he said it just felt so good uh, to be done with uh, such uh, a difficult accomplishment. But then... Some internet watchdogs uh, determined that it was just an honorary doctorate. And then those same watchdogs determined, they discovered, it was not just an honorary doctorate, but it was an honorary doctorate from an institution that didn't exist. So you can imagine the sort of uh, heyday they had with that. But rather than sort of repent and apologize, rather than, you know, say, look, I'm sorry, I, I, I fabricated this or whatever. The guy just doubled down, posted more Instagram pictures, uh, more celebratory stuff. Now, why would someone do that? Well, we want to appear accomplished. We want to appear as though we're, we're forward thinkers. We want to appear as though we are advanced in our reasoning. And, and I'm all for continuing education. But there's no philosophy... There's no way of thinking, regardless of how sophisticated or progressive it may sound, that can stand against God's word, what the Lord has said. Because God is always true. By his very nature, he cannot lie. So any philosophy, any, any worldview, any way of thinking or believing, or even any way of salvation that contradicts what God says is not wisdom, it's foolishness. It's not progressive it's regressive. It's not brilliant. It's dumb. And all who oppose what God says, despite all the degrees in the world, they are by definition liars. And because God is true and every man is a liar, God is justified or proved right when he speaks and just when he judges, Paul says in verse 4, drawing from Psalm 51 and King David's situation. We don't have time to get in it this morning. Let's continue through the text, verses 5 through 8. 
But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, now again, Paul is he's imagining this sort of interlocutor, this, this someone arguing with him. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, again, that may get by no means. For then how could God judge the world? For if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So Paul's writing again to this church, which is a mixture of Jew and Gentiles. And he's really dealt with the Gentiles much of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in here in chapter 3, he's anticipating objections from those uh, Jewish folks in the church and he anticipates two objections. One is, if our unrighteousness just makes God's righteousness that much more evident, then why would God judge us for our unrighteousness since it serves such a good purpose? It's kind of like if a kid said to her mom or dad, his mom or dad, the reason I don't make my bed or put away my shoes or uh, put my clothes in the dirty uh, basket is because I want to demonstrate by contrast how amazing you are at keeping the rest of the house so clean. Now, no kid has ever said that, as far as I know. Uh, if any kid would have come up with it, it would have been one of my four, for sure. Uh, but it just doesn't work, does it? Now, another objection is, if every time we lie, we just accentuate the truthfulness of God, then shouldn't we start lying more often, they say, so that God's holiness and truthfulness are accentuated even more? And Paul says, no. God does not need our unrighteousness in order for his own righteousness to shine. God's holiness is not comparative. It is absolute. And God doesn't need our lies in order for his truthfulness to be known. In point of fact, his truthfulness is clear in all that's right with the world and his faithfulness generation after generation. So God is just, independent from anything we think or do. God is holy. His holiness, we might say, is bound up in who he is. Uh, New Testament scholar Charles Cranfield writes, that God who shall judge the world is just is a fundamental certainty of all theological thinking. God would in fact not be God at all if he were unjust. So, you know, we all have opinions about how things ought to be. And we all have our own ideas about how God should be or ought to be. But regardless of our opinion, what we have to defer to is God's own self-revelation. And regardless of our own ideas about how things should be, we have to submit to and come under the authority of God's word because what God says and does is always true, perfect, right, and holy. Now, it's going to be helpful to remember that. I'm going to bring it to mind as we continue to work our way through this book. But It'll be helpful to remember that when we get later in, into this letter, when we start to look at passages that uh, may prompt us to think, that's just not fair. And that's not fair. It shouldn't be that way. Well, again, because everything God does is just, even if it flies in the face of our ideas of fairness and equity, we have to defer to what God says. So look at verses 9 through 18. There's this broader section in this passage. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For you have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, 
None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now again, remember the context here. So Jews and Gentiles who have, throughout so much of history to this point, really hated each other, despised each other. It's been a religious hatred. It's been an ethnic hatred, among other things. Um, they have been united into the same church, the same spiritual family. Uh, whereas outside the church, Jews and Gentiles are looking for ways to, to demonstrate their superiority over one another. Uh, inside the church, they are equal. In Christ, they are brothers and sisters. So former enemies, uh, former haters of one another, they've been united as siblings in Christ. So in Christ, they're brothers and sisters. Outside of Christ, they're not just at odds with each other, but also at odds with God. Like every other person ever born, they are under sin. They are born guilty before God, under, under the dominion and the power of sin, slaves to their sinful nature. And Paul shows what that looks like in, in this section, which he borrows largely from the Psalms. So verse 11, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Now this is not about some really, really bad people somewhere else. This is an indictment of all humanity apart from or outside of Jesus Christ. None, no one, not one, Paul says, for emphasis. Again, no one apart from the supernatural regenerating work of the Holy Spirit understands the things of God, and because of that, no one chooses God, and no one seeks for God. They run from God and balk at His authority. Now, you might say, well, well, all the poets of old, and all the philosophers of old, and even all the architects of old, they are, they're, they're pursuing, they're seeking after God. They're building things to try to show and find God. They're writing prose to sort of find God. Don't people in their darkest hour really seek for God? And the answer is, not the God of the Bible. They seek for peace. They seek for relief from their suffering. They seek uh, from pardon from their guilt. They seek some semblance of purpose and meaning some spiritual experience perhaps, but they don't seek the authoritative God of the Bible apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, very important, we talk about this phrase worthless, that we understand that Paul's talking about morally or spiritually worthless. Because we are human beings created in the very image of God, every single person is, is of great worth and of priceless value. At the most fundamental level, we might say ontologically, at the level of our being, we are designed to mirror and represent our Creator. And despite the fall of Adam and Eve, every human being remain, retains rather an element of that God-endowed goodness. So every person you'll ever meet, including those yet to be born, including those still in the womb, 
enjoys the dignity of bearing the image of God and is of great worth and value. It's ethically or spiritually that we have a problem. Because of the rebellion of our first parents in the garden, we see Paul says in verse 9 here, we're under sin. The curse of sin has been passed down from generation to generation, from Adam all the way to us. Sin and death enter the world by one man, Paul will say a couple of chapters later, and no person has, ex- has escaped its bondage. So we, our minds, our wills, our bodies, our desires, all of those things have been contaminated by sin. And even though none is as bad as he or she could be, perhaps, that is to say no one has reached their, we'd probably say their max potential for evil, everything we do is still tainted by sin. This is why Paul would say there's no one good, not one. This is why Jeremiah, many years before uh, Paul, would say that our hearts are deceitful above all things, desperately wicked and beyond cure. Okay, so he goes on to explain, verses 13 through 16 describe how that moral perversity manifests itself through our actions, our words, our motives, and desires. And then in verse 17, the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. How have they not known the way of peace? Their self-centered, self-glorifying ways have resulted in violence, if not physical violence, relational violence, emotional violence not peace, because they do not fear God, which is a starting point for wisdom and human flourishing. Now, this all sounds really, really bad, doesn't it? And it is. It is really bad. It's pretty depressing stuff. All people apart from Christ are radically depraved, unwilling, unable, and opposed to seeking after God. Great New Testament scholar John Murray writes, the apostle has selected a series of indictments drawn from the Old Testament and covering the wide range of human character and activity to show that from whatever aspect men may be viewed, the verdict of Scripture is one of universal and total depravity. Now, some YouTube theologian, and some of you have sent me links, may say the opposite. But he or she has to do damage to the text of Scripture in order to make that contention. Oprah may disagree. I'm sure she does. But it is as straightforward as it can be. Apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, man does not, will not, and cannot seek after God. So here's our second point. Apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that is regeneration, Him making alive in Christ, every person is a glory-seeking God-rejecting, dead man walking. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. This is the case for everyone who has not responded to the offer of the gospel. If you're a Christian, this is what you were before God saved you. If you're not a Christian, God says this is who you are right now. Now, there are several reasons we don't like this. And let me just very quickly give you three. One is um, it presents a very low view of humanity, doesn't it? We love to be told about our innate goodness, about our moral beauty, about how deserving we are of everything good. Paul presents a very different picture, though. We're not innately good, but rebels at our core. But we hate to admit it. We hate so much to admit it. A man came to me 
15 years ago, and he was just broken. He said his daughter, who was in her early 20s, was being abused by her husband. Her husband would uh, get angry and then hit his wife, which was this man's daughter. And then this man's telling the story, and I myself getting angry and really you know, burden for this family. And then the guy said something that absolutely stopped me in his tracks. He's telling about his son-in-law who abuses his daughter. And then he said, but he's really a good person. I just couldn't believe it. Why would you say he's a good person? Why would you say that a person who does this is a good person? Because we desperately want to defend the goodness of humanity. So that's one reason we don't like this. The second reason we don't like what Paul says here is because it goes against our experience, at least we believe. You know, we, we read about those descriptions in verses 10 through 18. They're worthless, evil, deceitful, venomous, violent. And we think, wait a second, I know people who aren't Christians who are nothing like that. Nothing like this at all. They're good people. They're kind. They're helpful. They're generous. They're sacrificial. They're not any of these things. Well, the truth is there are many non-Christians who are very nice people, who do nice things, who help other people out, who make sacrifices. I have neighbors on three sides of me that fit that description. Don't ask about the fourth one. Um, But there are people who are very kind, nice people. Yes, non-Christians may do kind things, and so many do, and they may be super helpful and sacrificial, and generous, and maybe even the most moral people you know. But they are living in active rebellion against God, under sin, under the wrath of God, radically depraved, which again, doesn't mean they can't do anything nice, but that everything they do is actuated by wrong motives and wrong uh, sinful desires. The Westminster Confession says it so well. Works done by unregenerate men, this is those who have not been made alive in Christ, brought to saving faith, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and others. Yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner, according to the word, nor to a right end the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive uh, grace from God. So we don't like it for a second reason because it just doesn't seem to jive with what we see. But we have to understand what Paul's saying. And the third reason we don't like what Paul says is um, if we're radically depraved in such a way, then salvation must require a radical solution. Because we are dead in sin, we can't make a decision to follow Christ apart from the supernatural work of the Spirit. Dead people can't self-resurrect. They must be brought to life. But we're desperate to preserve our autonomy, our freedom to choose, and our own strength. But that's not what Paul says is how salvation works. Now look at verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. When I was eight or nine years old, um, and my parents had been divorced by then, I discovered my dad's record collection in a cabinet uh, in a room in our house. 
And uh, my dad loved music, loves music. My mom loves music. We love music in our family. And I found this just huge stack of records. And we didn't have much at all, but we did have a, an old Sansui turntable uh, on which we could play those records. And uh, we had some pretty good speakers. Again, a lot of records. Al Green, Leon Russell, Van Morrison, Aretha Franklin, The Beatles, John Prine, The Amazing Rhythm Aces. No one else has ever heard of that, I guarantee. Um, boxes, of, maybe Pastor Chris, boxes of records. And there were plenty of nights when I would actually, I didn't have any headphones, I would take the speakers off of the second shelf of the entertainment center and I would turn them inward and I would lie down on my back and I would just listen to music for hours. Um, and there was a, along with all these LPs, the, the big records, my dad had a big box of 45s. These are the singles. And if you remember, if you're old enough to recall, in order to play the, the, the singles, you had to put an adapter in so it would fit on the turntable. And well, one of those singles was, was a song called I Fought the Law and the Law Won by the Bobby Fuller Four. Some of you are nodding. Um, it was a song about a man who tried to live above the law, uh, but the law eventually left him condemned. When we think about the law, again, you know, we could get into, there's, you know, the Mosaic Law, of course, but here, by context, um, we're talking about what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and all the commands contained therein. We talk about the law of God, they're there for multiple, reason, multiple reasons. Certainly one reason is to show us the best way to live, that is for those who are redeemed, the way that to bring honor the one who, to the one who redeemed us. But another reason for the law is to show us how far we have fallen from the perfection that God requires. The law speaks to those under the law, verse 19. This is a reference first to the Jews, those who were looking down at the Gentiles because the Gentiles didn't have the law. But just in case they imagine themselves as exempt from this scathing rebuke of mankind, Paul uh, makes it clear that he's talking about the whole world, talking about everyone. In fact, and he says that, uh, that, that the whole human race, their mouths have been stopped. Paul says the law stops every mouth and indeed the whole world stands guilty before God. To those who might think, as many do, I've been a good person. You know, I've done some really good things. I've done my best. I've tried my hardest. I come from a good family. It's that song that we have on repeat. God says through his law, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And then those who say, they think, well, I'm good enough. They realize I'm actually not good enough. God says through the law, love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which lives, leaves the person claiming to be good enough clearly not good enough because no one perfectly loves God in that way. The law tells us not to hate, not to lust, not to envy or be jealous, not to lie, not to judge, not even to shade the truth, not to worship any other gods, which leaves that person claiming to be good enough clearly not good enough. All these commands of God show us why we need a Savior. This is what Paul meant in verse 20. Look at it again. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now that's a fascinating phrase. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul will actually unpack that in chapters 5 and 7. We'll get to that uh, in a few weeks. But what he makes it clear is there's no amount of doing that will save anyone. 
because we can never do enough. That's why the law uh, can never justify, because we can't keep it. But there's more to the story. It's really part of next week's passage, but if a Christian ser- if, if a sermon just stops with the bad news and doesn't give you any Christ-centered good news, it's actually not a Christian sermon. If a sermon just tells you what to do, but doesn't tell you what's been done by God in Christ, it's not a Christian sermon. It may have some you know, fascinating things to say, but it's not a Christian sermon. If you're just told what to do and not what's been done by God in Christ, it's not a Christian sermon. So we'll look at verses 21 and 22. This is all one letter, remember. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So even though every person is guilty before God, and even though every person outside of Christ is uh, a God-rejecting, glory-seeking self-worshipper, and even though the perfect law of God silences every mouth, and even though no excuse on judgment day uh, will prevail against God, God has not left mankind in the state of sinful misery. God declares righteous those who believe. It is by faith we are saved. Here's our final point. The law condemns, but Jesus liberates all who believe. This is what I think Paul, I can just imagine as Paul is dictating this to Tertius, and I I can just imagine this is what he's been wanting to say. He was wanting to get to this ever since 116. He wants to say it, but he's got to really lay the groundwork for the bad news. He said, yes, we're all guilty before God. And yes, through their good works, no one will be declared righteous before God. By keeping the law, no one will make it into heaven. But there is a righteousness apart from the law. The righteousness of God is by faith. The law says you are unrighteous. Look at all the ways you failed. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus has succeeded perfectly in perfect obedience in all the ways that we have failed to keep the law. The law says you were created to glorify and enjoy God and to honor Him with your life. And because of your disobedience, you have incurred a moral debt that you can never pay, that you'll never have the resources to pay. The gospel says Jesus paid our debt by fulfilling the law and dying in our place. The law says when you stand before God, you will have to answer for your rebellion. The gospel says your verdict has already been declared. You are not guilty before God by faith in Jesus Christ. The law says you'll never, ever meet the standard. You'd have to become a different person. The gospel says that the resurrection of Jesus was for our justification, evidence that God is making all things new, including those who believe. As Martin Luther famously said, The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace, or the gospel says, believe in this, and everything is already done. Now, how does that help us? How does that help us? Well, certainly it enlarges our view of God, certainly our understanding of His love. If God loved us in such a way that He sent His Son while we were all of these things that we just read about, dead in sin, morally worthless, evil, vicious, violent, wicked. If God loved us so much that he sent his son when we were there in that way, 
then we can be sure that he will never stop loving us as reborn, born-again children. This also assures us of, of our salvation. If, if God did the radical and supernatural work of drawing us to Christ, bringing us to saving faith, granting us new life, we can rest assured that he will finish what he started. He's not going to leave us to our own devices. Certainly, finally, it leads us to gratitude for our salvation. Who worships more genuinely? Who worships more joyfully? Who obeys more spontaneously than those who understand God did it all? He did it all. And the person who understands that is the one who is able to cry out, how great thou art. You are the awesome king. You are the glorious savior. You are the unparalleled redeemer. And there is no other. Now, maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, I've never believed, and I don't like the thought of what you just said I am. Well, this morning God is extending to you a time to repent and believe. What is called you? You don't have to get into the mind of God and figure out how it all works. No, repent and believe. Recognize that you're a sinner. Understand you cannot save yourself. You have violated God's perfect standard, the law, and yet God sent a Savior. I tell you, I, I had a meeting this morning with an eight-year-old and he had the most, and his parents, and he had the most beautiful testimony. It was clear. It was simple. I'm a sinner. How are you a sinner? Well, the things I want to do to my little brother, you know, it's clear to him. How are you a sinner? He told me he was a sinner. What are you trusting in? Teared up and said, I'm trusting in Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins. That's what I'm believing in. Repent and believe the gospel. God calls you this morning to turn from your sin, from your rebellion, and trust in Jesus for your salvation. Today is the day and now is the time. God promises he will forgive you and he will make you brand new. And at some point down the road, after you've been made new, after you've experienced the grace and forgiveness of God, you'll come to the realization, as the old hymn says, Jesus led me all the way. It was all of him. Let's pray.